0: Listener supported WNYC Studios.
1: Good evening and welcome to NYC Now. I'm Janae Pierre for WNYC. We know what dignified conditions are, and so like I just can't, like, this is like the bare minimum. Advocates and some elected officials say conditions are deplorable for migrants in some New York City shelters. Like in Bushwick, a facility serving over 300 adult men went without working showers for weeks. And at one Upper West Side shelter, Councilmember Gail Brewer says migrant families went without baby formula and wipes until her staff intervened.
2: You know, I I just, I don't understand how, if we heard about it, and we're not there every day, how
1: a staff member could not have um, also been aware. I, I just don't know. A city hall spokesperson says the city is doing the best it can. But what's needed is a national response and more support to address this national issue. Former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani admits he made false statements working as a lawyer for former President Donald Trump. The New York Times reports the admission centers on his claims that two Georgia election workers had mishandled ballots during the 2020 election. The mother and daughter sued Giuliani. And in court papers filed this week, Giuliani acknowledged that his statements were actionable and false. But Giuliani refuses to acknowledge they caused any damage and says his accusations were constitutionally protected under the First Amendment. A man who claims to have witnessed the 1965 assassination of Malcolm X is speaking out. He contends the assassin was an NYPD informant. WNYC's Arun Vanagopal has more.
0: Mustafa Hassan was a member of the Organization of African American Unity, a group formed by Malcolm X, and was part of the security detail on the day of the fatal shooting. In an affidavit, he says he heard an NYPD officer ask another officer, is he one of us, in reference to the assailant. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump says that strongly suggests the assailant was a police informant, and questioned why Hassan was never called to trial. Last year, the city agreed to a $36 million payout to two men who were wrongfully convicted in the murder. The family of Malcolm X is suing the NYPD and federal law enforcement agencies for allegedly concealing evidence related to the assassination.
1: Stick around. There's more after the break.
0: On this week's On the Media, does the rise of X signal the fall of traditional right-wing outlets? You don't have to have this website and a link that people have to click on. You can just say stuff, and you can get attention. You know, you don't need to be Breitbart to do that anymore. Also, what does decolonization really mean? On this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hair braiders spend hours weaving their fingers into intricate patterns every day. It's a great skill to have, but the work is hard and the hours are long. Installing a single style can take 10 to 12 hours. And for many of the West African immigrant women who make their living this way, this work can take a devastating toll. WNYC's Michael Hill talked with writer Horasia Tall about her latest piece on workplace injuries that some of these hair braiders sustain.
2: So much of your story is about the persistent pain many hair braiders, just like your mom, feel every day. Would you describe the physical discomfort people in this occupation live with and the working conditions that bring on this pain?
3: So a lot of the pain is concentrated in parts of the body like their hands, their fingers, because they spend so much time braiding um, in their back because they're standing for so long, uh, that sort of thing. And um, the conditions, they're just working for a really, really long time and, you know, braiding customer after customer, day after day, you know, cumulatively, that uh, that adds up to a lot of pain. And a lot of these women, you know, just can't take the time off uh, to tend to that pain. And so they have to push through. And years and years of that can really take a toll on one's body.
2: Horatio, so it's a situation where if your mom doesn't work, she doesn't get paid. Exactly. There's no holiday pay. There's no overtime. It's just...
3: Yeah, it depends on the rates that she and the customer agree on. The customer may give her a tip. The customer may not give her a tip, you know? So it it really, it really depends. But she's not being paid if she doesn't work. She's not salaried.
2: And it's not like they're just doing it four or five days a week. Sometimes it's more days than that, isn't it?
3: Oh, for sure. Like, my mom has gone weeks without a day off, working seven days a week, week after week after week, because a lot of it depends on, you know, when you have a customer. And so if you have a customer who is available on a certain day, you don't know necessarily when you're getting your next customer. So you don't necessarily have the luxury of turning down that customer.
2: The vast majority of the women you spoke to were previously undocumented. How does their immigration status complicate their relationships with their jobs?
3: I don't know that the vast majority of them are undocumented at this point, but I do know that when they first came to the states they were undocumented at least. And then over time they become documented, but you know that can take maybe 10-15 years and at that point they're in so deep with braiding that they don't necessarily know how to change careers.
2: And New York requires hair braiders to have a license, but most of the women you spoke to for your story worked without formal certification. What did they tell you about their choice to forego a license?
3: So a lot of the women I spoke to did want licenses but they just don't know where to start and it's also cost prohibitive for a lot of them and they don't know who to approach about getting a license and it's a skill a lot of them already possess so a lot of them just don't know what a license would add to their lives.
2: Some groups such as Natural Hairstyle and Braid Coalition are working to help braiders get licensed. What are the arguments for getting licenses for more workers?
3: So some of the arguments in favor of licensure are that it would bring formality to the profession. It would bring a sort of standardization because you have to go through X, Y, Z in order to get a license. And so if you see someone who has a license, you know that they've done certain things in order to get it.
2: What are the limits of licensure?
3: So licensing, from what I've heard in talking to braiders, doesn't magically solve their issues. It doesn't immediately give them protections. It doesn't make the braiding any less painful. A license is not going to alleviate the the physical toll of braiding.
1: That's writer Horasia Tall talking with WNYC's Michael Hill. For more than a month, people have been meeting in a playground in Bushwick, Brooklyn. They're not there to bring their kids to play, but to contribute to and eat an ever-cooking pot of stew that's gone viral online. WNYC's Ramsey Khalife decided to find out what the hype is all about.
0: Crowds of people have been coming to Fermi Playground to get a taste of a communal stew that's been cooking since early June.
3: It's surprisingly tasty. It was really good.
0: Stupendous. On this night, as many as 200 people turned out. The person bringing them all together is Annie Rowardo. She says she thought it would be a fun idea to start a perpetual stew club.
3: The sorts of people that decide to go out of their way and come contribute random vegetables to a pot of perpetual stew are rather adventurous and interesting bunch.
0: Hajin Yu is her friend and co-creator of the concept. She says the idea goes way back.
3: Apparently, like in the medieval times, they would have a cauldron going full of like hot water and vegetables and you would just like keep adding ingredients. Some people say it would last decades.
0: This pot has been brewing for more than 40 days. Rarda starts the stew at home in a crock pot. She carries it every few weeks to the meetups, never taking it off simmer. The pot stays plugged into a battery so it can keep cooking. People toss in all sorts of ingredients that make sense for a stew. Potatoes. Some shouting out what they brought. Dominican crackers from the bodega. Everyone seemed to enjoy the stew, but what struck me most was how much people were enjoying each other's company. I mean, I I would most people come alone to these events, and if your name is Stu, you're recognized as the guest of honor. Tonight's special guest is
1: My first name is Stuart. Your last name is Rutherford. You meet a lot of people and they find out your name is Stu. And then they'll be like, Oh, do you eat a lot of stew? How do you feel about the latest stew? And so to actually come full circle and attend an event that's all about stew, it just feels like this is what I've been building up to.
0: Josefina Hernandez has been living in Bushwick for 30 years. She says the meetup is a unique and good thing for the neighborhood.
2: This is not just a soup. This is people getting together, sharing whatever they have. This is what makes the community strong.
0: And while I enjoyed seeing the community come together, I couldn't leave without a taste of the stew. You know, I'm not a big soup guy, but this is good. The stew is peppery, it's light. There's all these aromas. It's palatable for most audiences. It's, it's delicious. It was an eventful night of perpetual stew, a stew And for however long it lasts, I'm happy to say I got to witness it for myself.
1: That's WNYC's Ramsey Khalifa. Thanks for listening to NYC Now from WNYC. Catch us every weekday, three times a day. We'll be back tomorrow.